Thank you very much. So uh, since I'm going to share everything I know, it'll take one minute instead of 30 seconds. So anyway, thanks, Juan. So uh, I am going to talk a little bit about the hip, but, but not about the, uh, what is most commonly discussed uh, probably in this podium or in this hospital, but more of the athletic hip, which, as Dave just talked about, is something that is uh, growing in uh, numbers and incidents across the United States and across the world. Dave uh, just mentioned some things, and so I'm just going to skip through these slides. But we've, this uh, the division of orthopedics, known as elite sports medicine, has been around for about 10 years. There's a lot of us. We're still growing. We actually are in the process of hiring another uh, physician, uh, another uh, physician assistant, as well as another athletic trainer. So we've got lots of things going on. There's lots of pieces of the puzzle, including the Center for Motion Analysis, which we are using more and more right now about return-to-play decisions. Dr. Maluski, one of my partners, is doing a tremendous amount of work trying to decide when it's safe to go back after ACL injuries and reconstructions. We also were very fortunate for the past few years to have the Ambulatory Surgery Center, which is a walking distance from our office, which makes it even better for me. So I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about common athletic injuries of the hip, and that's why it's a little bit different today. Talk a little bit about what we might do if you should see somebody in your office that has one of these problems what we can do very, very briefly about non-operatively. I'm not here to teach anything about operative skills, but I'll show you a few pictures. And then maybe if time permits, some rehabilitation ideas. So first off, adolescent hip issues can come uh, in two varieties, if you will, acute and chronic. The acute ones we all probably have had over a course of our lives individually, but certainly we will see them in treating the patients that come before us. Tendon injuries are probably the most common that we will see. And again, quadriceps or hamstring injuries are very, very common. Uh, pelvic avulsion fractures are something that we see, especially in those individuals perhaps that are trying to do things a little bit beyond their capability, and we'll give you a quick example of one of those. I am not going to talk about femoral neck fractures, which unfortunately one came in just this past weekend, um, and, and they are disastrous when they do occur, and I'm not going to go down that path. Acute injuries can also be skiffies or slip capital femoral epiphysis, as we all know, and these are one of the things that we all need to watch out for and not miss because of the long-term sequelae should we miss those. On the, on the chronic side, we can see things when you talk about athletic hip injuries that include inguinal hernias. Now, it's not something that I'm uh, going to be the first one to tell you I know how to diagnose, but certainly when you hear a story that's consistent with somebody that has an intra-abdominal or some sort of problems with Valsalva, going to the bathroom, et cetera, et cetera sometimes this kind of clouds the issue with athletic hip injuries. We are going to talk about FAI or femoral acetabular impingement because that's probably one of the fastest growing aspects of athletic hip injuries. Snapping hip syndrome is something that we see a lot and uh, sometimes uh, uh, is confusing. We'll talk a little bit about that. Again, chronically, skiffies can occur in a chronic situation too, so don't forget that. And we are not going to talk about hip dysplasia. To remind everybody, here's the uh, uh, cadaveric uh, dissection of a hip joint. You can see here at the top, see if I can use the arrow across the top, you can see the labrum. The labrum actually goes 270 degrees around the acetabulum, increasing the depth, but also the stability of the hip joint itself. At the very central portion where the uh, uh, blood supply initially comes when, the, when a child is first born, uh, this becomes something known as, the, or is something known as the round ligament, which is really just something that gets in the way, gets irritated or pinched as we get up uh, past the age of three or four. Articular cartilage problems of the acetabulum are ones that hopefully nobody in this room has dealt with with a piece of metal, but certainly acetabular articular surface damage leads to uh, this number of total hip arthroplasties being done in older folks. 
And we can see all the things that you see here on the screen. So, and I'll show you a few pictures to show you that, that arthroscopically, the, the ability to get around the hip really has been, uh, has been improved uh, both by experience, but also by lots of research that's going on in this area. So just a little bit of an introduction uh, by, with a couple of cases. So this is a very common, especially right now, case that we'll see in our office, young adolescent uh, male hockey player. Um, it goes to a tournament. They always play too many games in, the, in two successive days when they go to these tournaments. So somebody all of a sudden is skating hard, feels something uh, in their inner thigh, uncomfortable, sits out the rest of that period, or maybe misses a shift or two on the ice, and then goes back. Um, maybe decides the next game, I'll just, I won't play. We're much better than the other team. They don't need me. I'll play tomorrow. I'll play on Sunday's championship game. And goes back on Sunday, plays a couple of games, but he feels uncomfortable. Somebody like this you would examine, they have normal range of motion, they have good strength when you ask them to fire their muscles without allowing hip motion, so isometric strength. They have no pain when you move them through these ranges. They do have some pain when you palpate deep over the pubis and they have a normal x-ray such as the one that I've put up here. So this is a very, very common something that we'll see in the office. This is obviously not, not this is non-debilitating pain. This is somebody with some ice and NSAIDs over the course of a few days, a week, will get better. And this is a very simple adductor strain, most common injury in an ice skater that we'll see. So this is not something that we need to worry about. Something like this, however, here's somebody who's running indoor track, all of a sudden in the midst of running feels a pop, can't continue. So debilitating pain. Examination a few days later shows that there is painless range of motion passively, but, and neurovascular exam is all fine, but there is pain on palpation over the ASIS, here demonstrated in this pelvic injury. So over on the left side uh, of the screen, you can see there's a little fleck of bone. I don't know how well it projects for you, but something like this is very classic. Again, for somebody who feels uh, a pop, this is debilitating. This is something that on exam will have point tenderness, and this is an avulsion fracture. So avulsion fractures are very common in, in young folks, obviously at the physes where the, uh, the bone is a little bit, uh, the strength of the attachment there is a little less, and we'll see these quite a bit. <clears throat> But let, let's talk more, uh, at least for my uh, purposes today, let's talk a little bit more about the, uh, the concerning or non-concerning or how you might uh, uh, start to go through a process of evaluating somebody who comes in with some hip pain. So we just talked about an avulsion fracture or a muscle strain, that's an acute pain. That, that makes sense, it's less concerning diagnostically, you know that it's there, as opposed to something that comes on in an insidious onset. Something that's insidious, you gotta kind of put, put your ears up. You know, I, I, sit, I had the pleasure of sitting across the dictation room from Dr. Wong and Dr. Hafiz, who seem to spend more time talking to patients than I do. Well, I think that means something about a surgeon, I'm not sure, but anyway. But, uh, but the insidious onset folks are ones that you, they're, they're concerning, you gotta worry about them. If somebody has a localizable pain, point tenderness, from a diagnostic point of view, it's pretty easy to figure it out. You should be able to figure out what that is. As opposed to somebody who has generalized pain, that's difficult. That kind of throws a kind of a curveball at us and something you need to pay a little bit more attention both with your history taking and with physical exam. If somebody has an injury that is acute, localizable, for the most part, they'll get better. Hopefully, they won't have to have surgery or anything else. Uh, some acute pain, localizable pain does need surgery, but most of these don't, especially in the adolescents. These usually get better with appropriate rest, physical therapy, and maybe some anti-inflammatories. 
On the other side of the coin, though, this insidious onset, folks, these are, again, these are the ones we worry about, not just diagnostically, but also from a ther uh, treatment point of view, because they, they don't get better with rest. They don't get better with physical therapy. There is something else there. And again, we've got to find that out, so we figure out exactly what it is. And hopefully, by the rest of this talk, I'll be able to give you some of those thoughts. So what are the pathologies that we're talking about here? Coxosultans or snapping hip syndrome, we'll talk a little bit about. Happens to be one of my interests just because when people uh, come in with a snapping hip, they, they're sure that their hip is dislocating. So the first thing you assure them is that that's not the case. But it's fun to talk about coxosultans, and we actually are much more experienced now at treating this, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Again, groin strains, probably the most common thing we'll see in avulsion fractures we just talked about. Those are all outside of the hip joint proper. Inside the joint, the labral tears, femoral acetabular impingement, again, we'll talk about that, and articular cartilage injuries. So the right side of the screen is the one that really we will focus on uh, today, with the exception of snapping hip, as I mentioned. So snapping hip comes in two flavors, external and internal. The internal ones are the one where the iliopsoas, or the hip flexor, pops over the front of the hip joint. When that happens, um, it's sometimes audible, often felt, sometimes by the examiner as well as by the patient. And the external ones are more uh, for older folks, maybe folks that are a little bit, uh, uh, carrying a little extra fat to keep them warm during the winter. These individuals though, uh, are, you can feel and you can palpate over the greater trochanter, you can feel the shifting of, of the hip. And these are the folks that say, my hip is dislocating, I know it. And they can sometimes demonstrate by wiggling their hips around, they can demonstrate this popping or snapping. So the internal snapping hip, or coxosultans as we've called it, uh, usually comes on with repetitive activities. It's not somebody who is uh, you know, playing a lot of video games. It's much more common in younger athletes, which we're not sure of. And some of the studies that are out there say that snapping hip actually exists, though it may not need to be treated up to 70% of the time in young athletic females. This, uh, this cartoon here kind of shows you the iliopsoas and the tendon down at the very base down in this area right over the front of the hip joint underneath the ilioinguinal ligament. That is actually where you will see the, or feel the snapping. External snapping hip on the other side is over the lateral aspect of the hip, over the greater trochanter we talked about. Tight iliotibial band in our group of individuals is the most common cause of this. Sometimes you can have it from trauma or prior surgery, but most of the time these folks come in with just a tight iliotibial band and with appropriate therapy will get better. So clinically, what do we see for the internal? Well, you, you hear somebody say they have a pop in the front of their hip. We can create that in the office usually by taking, as the diagrams show here, first at the, on the top left, somebody that is just lying supine. You can see where the iliopsoas uh, tendon is coming over the top of the hip. And then by bringing them up into flexion and external rotation with some abduction, that lower picture on the right shows that, that the tendon will change its position a little bit. With that test or with a Faber test, those individuals will feel the pop, or again, or you will feel the pop, helping you make the diagnosis. Here's just another cartoon um, from uh, Dr. Bird's uh, article that uh, he's written a lot about this. Here you can see on the left side is somebody who's out in abduction. You can see how the tendon is draped laterally to the hip joint itself. And then as you bring them back into extension, so in, I'm sorry, into adduction, you can see that that tendon actually uh, will snap back over into a medial and, if you will, more normal position. On the other side, external snapping hip will be the iliotibial band or the overtest. So that's somebody lying on their side, something that's very easy to feel and palpate. 
Um, and here you can see a picture from the side of the hip and with the arrows demonstrating that as you internally and externally rotate the hip, that tight tensor fascia lot of muscle or the iliotibial band will snap over the greater trochanter, giving that sense of uh, somebody dislocating their hip. Trying to look at uh, snapping hip syndrome, there are ways to do that. Here's an ultrasound, which uh, um, I don't know how to use, but uh, I certainly, when somebody puts a bunch of arrows on an ultrasound, I can tell you what I see. But you can see on the left is the uh, normal appearance of the iliopsoas tendon just above the hip joint. Then with motion in a dynamic fashion, the ultrasound will show this, the, hip, the tendon snapping over the front of the hip joint, hence the snapping syndrome uh, feel that the patient has. So this is actually a dynamic test. Ultrasound is a wonderful way to diagnose this and works very well. And should you have a question about somebody having internal uh, snapping hip syndrome or coxa sultans, I'd recommend strongly that you uh, consider getting an ultrasound on them. We can also get CAT scans for these same problems. Um, I will tell you the truth that CAT scans, uh, though they sometimes are obtained in this situation, they rarely make a big difference to us. Here's an axial cut at the level of the greater trochanter. You can see a few changes in the tensor fascia, a lot of muscle there. Similarly, when you get an MRI, the same thing appears. But again, hard to make the diagnosis with CAT scan and with MRI of external snapping hip syndrome, so I'm not sure that I'd push you there. Ultrasound, again, for the internal snapping hip, probably a better idea. So just to give you a sense about this as we go forward and get further into the hip joint, here you can see an arthroscopic picture uh, of looking at somebody, uh, this is a left hip, so the femoral head is down towards me on the screen, you can't quite see it in this particular picture. You can see a picture of the labrum above the acetabulum. Again, the uh, labrum goes 270 degrees around the acetabulum. You can see the capsule and one of our little instruments is there. The interesting thing is, is that just by taking off a millimeter or two of capsule, the next thing you see is the iliopsoas tendon. So the iliopsoas tendon is directly abutting the capsule of the hip joint. It's that close, sometimes making it difficult to differentiate between internal snapping hip and some sort of labral pathology. You can see how close they are to one another. And so when you, when you are in the operating room, so you have the, the privilege of being able to look at this and you can actually differentiate from an arthroscopic point of view very easily. And so here we are about to actually fractionate or to lengthen the iliopsoas tendon, which is something that is very easily done once you get to this point. Again, the concerning thing is in the same hip, there is a labral tear immediately adjacent to that, so this individual had both of these two things. This is somebody we operated on within the last month. <clears throat> so snapping hip, something that's interesting, something you shouldn't miss, and. Uh, one of the things you also don't want to miss is if you go to, down to uh, South Africa and you go to Victoria Falls in Zambia, when, you, uh, when they allow you to stand uh, seven feet away from 900 foot drop, I would suggest you do it. My kids weren't quite sure about it. Anyway, what about femoral acetabular impingement? So let's go inside a little bit. I think femoral acetabular impingement, at least from my discussions with individuals, is probably one of those things that um, that, you, that is misunderstood it's, um, or just not understood. Um, lots of folks will use the FAI uh, acronym. Certainly that's what we will do in the office once we describe it. Um, F, but FAI is probably something that we don't know enough about. The hip joint is the, the next joint in sports medicine that's being evaluated, being discussed and researched. FAI has only really, if you will, been on the, uh, on the radar of sports physicians probably for the last decade, um, and we still don't know everything that we need to know to treat it successfully. But really what it is is that uh, FAI is a pinching. It's impingement of the labrum 
between uh, the neck of the femur and the rim of the acetabulum. And so obviously if the labrum is between those two bony uh, solid pieces of tissue, if there is some sort of pinching, the likelihood of having pain is high and secondarily some sort of uh, labral tearing is also very high. The recent research shows that this is actually developmental. So unfortunately, a lot of the individuals that are playing ice hockey, youth ice hockey especially, are, seem to be developing increasingly FAI or FAI symptoms. This is starting to be seen a little bit in field hockey as well, obviously because of the same posture of a hip flexed uh, constantly while playing. So uh, it is something that, that may be developmental and something that uh, I just throw out there as a thought so you can think about it. Diagrammatically, this is what it looks like. So this is a right hip. If you look at the left side, you see what, what is probably a, a bump. It's, we refer to this bump here as a cam lesion. That cam lesion is just a little piece of bone at the neck head junction of the femoral neck and head. Um, right there, that little bump, obviously, if it's there, is going to bump easily into the acetabular rim. Conversely, you can have overgrowth of the acetabular rim, which is something we describe as a pincer lesion. So if you have this aspherical change in the femoral head, as you take your leg up, and especially into abduction and flexion, that, pinched, that piece of bone will pinch the labrum, as diagrammatically is shown here, causing a crushing type injury. You can imagine that this crushing type injury is not a single traumatic event. So this is one of those insidious onset issues that we were t I talked about a minute ago. This is one of the reasons or one of the ideas that we have right now about FAI and why it's important and why it's something we need to watch. Unfortunately, as we'll talk about a little bit later, diagnosis of FAI and of labral pathology sometimes is delayed. When that goes, comes on, chondral damage or articular surface damage is very commonly seen. So again, just diagrammatically, top left here, uh, labeled as A, is a normal hip with a normal appearing labrum. Somebody who has a pincer is that overgrowth of the acetabular labrum. Conversely, the little growth at the junction of the head and neck of the femur. And then you can have these as combined lesions when they're both there, obviously uh, heightening the chance that problems will occur. So one of the so what so who cares about FAI? Let's say that that everybody has FAI. We'll just magically give every young person that comes in with hip problems FAI. What what difference does that make? Well, actually, it turns out that if somebody has FAI and the and they have intraarticular pathology and the diagnosis of FAI is properly made and then treatment is in, instituted, it helps the outcome of that individual. So it's actually that's been well shown and documented in multiple uh, institutions, including ours. And so it's something that we that we're we're trying to follow and, and become more and more attuned with, especially if somebody has a labral tear. If somebody has a labral tear and they have that bony prominence, the cam lesion on the, on the femoral side or the pincer lesion on the acetabular side, if they have either of those and you don't treat them, the likely, likelihood that a recurrent tear or recurrent pain is very high. And so we want to make sure that we recognize FAI when it's there and treat it appropriately. So, uh, so what, what would we do in a clinical setting for FAI? Well, honestly, on a, from a history point of view, it's pain in the hip. From a clinical exam point of view, it's pain when you raise their, passively raise their uh, hip into flexion and then a little abduction. But it's not much more than that because then this is, this is just a pinching of tissue. This is like biting your cheek. It's not something that's, that's definitive on exam. It's a little bit difficult. So you need some help in making the diagnosis of FAI. So what you can do is you can get different angled pictures. Here's a picture of uh, uh, somebody first, the AP, and now somebody out in a frog leg lateral. 
or what we were trying to do now is something known as a done view, which I will uh, certainly uh, show you in a minute. But when you have FAI and it is caused by that bump of bone on either side, this is when you get into a hip joint, this is what you see. And this is not a red tear, it's not an acute tear. This is instead something that is shows, uh, if you will, a crush injury, because that's exactly what this is. Fortunately, if you end up in the operating room, again, the same idea is the companies have made us lots of instruments and the ability to get in there, and we can actually take the bump of tissue off. Here it is in the center portion. We can actually debride that back and uh, make it go away and improve the outcome of somebody. So it is something that when is treatable, and it is something when treated improves the outcome of individuals who end up in the operating room with hip pain. This has been uh, talked about for quite a while. Mark Philippon, who's out at the uh, Stedman Philippon Institute in Vail, is somebody who's leading the charge of this. He's actually the one that showed to us that youth hockey players have developmental FAI. So he's shown that this is something that can be treated. He's uh, uh, pro probably is the leader in the world right now of young youth uh, acetabular, femoral acetabular impingement uh, treatment. And here is one of his early studies that showed in young folks that when you make the diagnosis and treat it, they do quite well. Probably the most important thing for all of us as we learn more and more about it is that he has had very few initial study, no complications, and since then very few complications in treating adolescent, athletic adolescents with FAI. Um, a little bit more recently, we've started to see more and more studies, uh, studies that come out about the adolescents and treating them uh, uh, surgically. Again, when they're, when they're young and they're growing and we start to pull traction on their hip, there's lots of concerns for sure. So lots of the early studies in the treatment of adolescent hip injuries in the operating room really centered around complications. We have not seen a significant increase in complications or problems. There has been no, to my knowledge, there's been no uh, case reports or reports at all of uh, gross disturbance in these individuals. The way we make the decision uh, about FAI, again, I said you need help because clinical exam doesn't do a very good job for you, is by measuring something known as the alpha angle. I'm not trying to teach you the alpha angle. I'm just trying to give you a little sense of it. If you look on the left, somebody, ha this individual on the left has a cam lesion. So again, that, that little extra piece of bone where the arrow is at the head-neck junction, as opposed to the uh, individual on the right side of the screen where you can see that there really is not a piece of bone. So uh, you can see that we can draw a circle, so create a circle around the head of the femur, and then measure this angle down the femoral neck and out to the location of that bone. That is the measurement of an alpha angle, and that's actually how we will make the diagnosis of somebody with a cam lesion and FAI before they uh, be undergo any treatment of any sort. We also can measure other things. These are very common to everybody in this room. You get the left side, obviously, is somebody that has a, a very, very deep acetabular socket. Center edge angle is huge. This is somebody that actually is going to have a different set of problems, uh, uh, arthritic in nature down, down the road, probably significant limitation of motion, as opposed to one of our patients on the right who happens to be a gymnast, and you can see that person has a very shallow acetabulum, probably is going to have uh, lots of troubles uh, in later life, but it's going to be uh, on our screen in the Olympics because they have such great motion. So as soon as I read that Juan kicks me out, I'm going to go take pictures of the animals. I think I love doing that. <clears throat> Let me give you another case here. So here's a, a level eight gymnast. Uh, gymnasts right now are, are just getting, are tuning up to get into their competition season. They've all kind of uh, finished learning their new tricks. So now these are uh, kids that are spending more and more time in the gym and they're really going crazy. So here's uh, some of we saw uh, last, uh, well actually a little more than last week because we already know what's going on. But uh, 
This is an individual, again, very typical uh, uh, story, something that I think you guys have all heard. And, and if you haven't, you should start listening uh, to some of these folks because somebody who comes in who's a high-functioning athlete who has this vague pain that they can't pinpoint, they took a whole day off or they took a weekend off or whatever amount of time they took off, and they felt better. They maybe went to physical therapy, felt a little bit better. But as soon as they went back to whatever the inciting event was, whatever the inciting activity was, they immediately had uh, pain. For a gymnast, and in this particular case, went back into the gym, ballistic motions as they ran down the runway to hit a vault. Um, as, as they hit the springboard, that's when they felt their pain. Um, so uh, we, 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 again, as I said, we've seen a lot of this. We had the privilege of being the medical providers of the P&G championships that were here last, uh, last year in the Excel Center. So here's a group of us that were there uh, providing medical coverage. Um, but, the, but these individuals and this particular individual has, uh, has had pain for two years and is now developing pain sitting in class or sitting in a car. So, so now there's day-to-day uh, -day activities are starting to be uh, uh, problematic. This individual trying to figure out what was going on had an injection at the time of her MRI. Most of the time when an MRI is ordered, we do it with an arthrogram, so we put contrast into the joint. Um, if you also add some lidocaine or some bupivacaine into that injection, you can get a diagnostic injection at the same time. This individual had that and had complete pain relief for a few hours at least, which uh, makes us think the problem or the pathology is within the hip joint. The MRI was positive. Here's the MRI with some markings on it, that white arrow uh, pointing to the labral tear. And again, labral tears on MRI, sometimes easily seen, not always, but sometimes easily seen. It makes it much easier once you see the tear on the MRI because you can be more uh, uh, definitive with the patient and their family about what the right treatment might be. This individual, uh, as I said, did have uh, both that positive MRI and a positive diagnostic injection. Did end up in the op operating room, and here you can see at the top us putting a little small probe just for uh, magnification purposes. That probe is only three millimeters long at the tip. You can see the femoral head on the right. You can see that probe around the labrum. And then we push on the labrum, and you can see how it's very uh, hypermobile. And in fact, there was a tear there. So this individual did get back into uh, gymnastics and at, a, at what I believe is appropriate, about four and a half months was doing ballistic activities. So what about labral tears? Labral tears is something that uh, we, we understand more. It's probably what you talk about when you have a conversation about athletic hip injuries in a setting such as ours today. Um, it happens uh, with repetitive activities most of the time. However, you can have a single event that causes it. Um, those are just not uh, very frequent. Most of the time, those individuals uh, are, uh, are having a different uh, problem, whether it be bony uh, avulsions or true bony uh, uh, fractures uh, as opposed to labral pathology. <clears throat> so uh, some, we've been doing a lot of talk back at ESM about hip pathologies, about the rehab and how we treat them. Um, a couple of, uh, one of our therapists and, and physician assistants gave us a talk a little while ago and, and they reminded me that, that the percentage, the number of hip arthroscopies that we're doing in the United States is, is really rising faster than almost any other sports procedure that we're doing. And the younger folks are probably the biggest group that are increasing. So as it turns out, looking back, uh, uh, so Nicole Cottle, the PA that I work with primarily, actually looked back at our, uh, at our uh, records over the past four to five years, and it turns out that I've, I've done more hip arthroscopies than ACLs over the past that time frame. So it is something that's growing rapidly and is something that I think you'll hear more and more about. 
I mentioned this earlier, one of the problems is uh, with uh, intraarticular pathology in these young athletes is that, um, is that very often the diagnosis is delayed. Very often it's that vague pain that goes to therapy and, and is not forgotten about, but is basically said, you'll be fine, just rest and you'll be, you'll be good. But um, it turns out that with that type of treatment and today in our treatment, it sometimes takes as much as almost two years and certainly a year and a half to make the diagnosis appropriately. So waiting that long is, is very uh, problematic for the athlete, for sure, because of the pain that they're in and their inability to, to perform at the level they want. But it also turns out that, as you can imagine, anytime a, a diagnosis or a pathology inside our body exists for a period of time, the pathology actually will get worse over the course of time. So what, so what do you, when somebody comes in with this kind of problem, what might, might you hear, what do you think about? Well, it's not a rotational event. So you shouldn't be looking for somebody who planted their foot and went the other direction as, as you would hear when somebody tears their ACL, for instance. Uh, pivoting motion is not necessary and is not something that you necessarily will hear at all. Sometimes people talk about clicking in the front of their hips. So as you take them passively, actively, actively through a range of motion, you'll hear them say, I felt a click or don't you feel that? Or, but that's not always there, so, and that certainly is not necessary. If you have a tear that's not hypermobile, you're not gonna have a click. And the, one of the important things about uh, uh, labral pathology and uh, FAI is the pain is in the front of the hip. And remember that your hip joint is actually a long way away from the lateral aspect of your hip and a long way away from the greater trochanter. So it, that sounds like such a simple statement, but the number of times that people come in saying that I have a problem in my hip and they point to the outside of their hip, they point out to the greater trochanter is, is huge. The good thing is if they point to the outside, you can smile at them and, and send them on to therapy and they'll probably get better with iliotibial band stretching or other problems because that's probably snapping hip, external snapping hip. But when they have pain in the front, when they have pain almost towards their groin, those are the folks that are probably going to have interarticular pathology, and that's what you hear when you're going down the path of FAI diagnosis and treatment or labral tears. People that have had a labral tear for a while or FAI, they'll have pain while they're sitting. They hate to ride in a car long distances. We're privileged enough at ESM to have folks come from a fair distance to see us. When they drive from the shore to see us or when they drive from the uh, Rhode Island border, which is a long trip in the morning for sure, as I just heard somebody had today, um, that's, they, don't like, they don't like to come see us, that's too far. But that's a diagnostic step in and of itself, right? If you sit in the car for an hour and a half and you have pain in the front of your hip, that's a problem. A lot of them will describe something known as the C sign. Dr. Wong's uh, famous for walking around uh, our office with his hands up in the air, which basically is a signal to me that I'm about to see somebody. Um, but when you, have a C, when you have somebody that has a label tear, they'll very often do, just as this individual is doing here, with a C sign be, with their thumb and their first finger. Usually this doesn't come on traumatically. I just mentioned that. It's insidious in its nature, and it's often uh, very deep. Somebody will say, I can't feel it. I, know, I feel it, but I can't put my finger on it. You, as an examiner, won't be able to put your finger on it either, because it's deep. It's down inside the joint. Most of the time, there's full range of motion. There might be uh, pain at the end range, but there's not, uh, not a loss of motion in these folks. Again, these are young, healthy uh, athletes, so they usually don't lose motion. They hate to be pushed into internal rotation, however, and so one of the tests that we've developed actually out at the office is something known as the third test. This third test stands for the hip internal rotation distraction test, which we'll talk about in a second. But it, uh, the, that test and the favorite test are the two most common tests that we'll do in the office to try to make the diagnosis. 
So here on the left is uh, uh, basically what we will do for a third test. The first part of it is to, to actually bring the hip up into uh, flexion, then to roll it over into internal rotation with some compression of the joint. So like a mortar and pestle, though obviously I'm old enough to know what a mortar and pestle is and most of you don't, but a mortar and pestle is when you're grinding up medicine, you put a put a, a pill at the bottom of the, of the uh, mortar, mortar and you, you grind it up. Well, that's what we're doing to these poor folks with labral tears, and so it doesn't sound very nice, but, but it, it gives somebody a sharp reprodu reproduction of their pain. You then distract the hip, so then you pull apart the hip and do the same motion. If the pain goes away, it is, at least in our, uh, our studies, shows that that is a, probably the best diagnostic step in the clinic to decide that somebody does or does not have, FA, uh, have a labral tear. The Faber test is much more commonly uh, utilized and much more commonly spoken about here being demonstrated. Again, it's flexion of the hip, then abduction and external rotation. This is going to probably pinch the labrum more and more uh, commonly seen in folks that have FAI uh, as opposed to a labral tear, but certainly another test in the armamentarium that you should know about. Other than the exam, x-rays are very common. You, you should um, try to make sure that you get an x-ray that shows the edge of the uh, uh, head-neck junction of the femur. Uh, so that, that the best way to see it is something that known as a done view. That done view is done in a, a radiology, and the radiology techs will be able to do it for you, but it's done with a little bit of flexion and a little bit of uh, abduction, uh, and that'll uh, actually put the, the femoral neck on foss and allow you to see this a little bit better. It was initially described as uh, somebody who stands up on a barrel, such as this gentleman, um, and uh, it does work pretty well, and that way you'll, now you have a visual of what it is. There's the x-ray of that uh, standing individual, and you can see if you look at it, Again, this is, uh, you've already seen this x-ray today, but there up the top at the junction is that cam lesion that we're looking for. What about labral tears and other ways to diagnose them? We do uh, get MRIs very commonly. Uh, I would say that the MRIs that we get um, probably are 50-50 in diagnosing labral tears. MRIs are a coin flip. I'm not saying you shouldn't get them. I'm just saying that if you get an MRI and you read the bottom, it says normal MRI, the chances of them having a normal hip interarticularly, if all the other things are positive, is very low. So MRIs, when you see a labral tear, are very helpful. When you don't see it, it's not helpful at all because they may still have a problem within the joint. So again, this uh, same picture you saw before, when it is there on MRI, it is clear and it's easy to move forward. If you don't see it, however, it doesn't do, it doesn't do you any good. These are all same th three different views of the same MR. The white is the gadolidium that was injected uh, inside. And as I mentioned, we will try to put marcaine or lidocaine in the mixture of the gadolidium to get a diagnostic injection at the same time. Diagnostic injections, however, are not universally accepted as a, as a positive uh, step in the evaluation of labral pathology. Sometimes when people do this, Dr. Bird again is, uh, says that it's a 90% positive predictive value of interarticular pathology. Others haven't seen it to be that great. But again, if you do a diagnostic injection and it is positive, it helps you move forward. So what about non-operative treatment of labral tears? Uh, labral tear in my, again, uh, as a surgeon at least, a labral tear is a mechanical problem. So certainly there, we will try physical therapy on almost everybody. We'll try some rest. But uh, for, since it's a mechanical problem, it's not something that I hold personally a lot of hope uh, 
once we've made the diagnosis that it's going to be successful in fully treating the individual. But in trying that, you're going to try to see if somebody can uh, get better, do some stretching, make sure that they don't have any tightness. Asymmetric uh, tightening around the hip is very common. Some strengthening to try to work on the pelvic tilt. So if you have a, a little bit increased anterior tilt of your pelvis, it's going to bring the, change the position of the acetabulum, which is going to increase the chance that you have pinching of the labrum when you go through motion. So stretching, strengthening of your labrum, uh, sorry, of your lumbar spine, and strengthening of your core will make a big difference, uh, if anything is going to make a difference. That pelvic tilt that I talked about is something that we're trying to investigate out at the office and uh, hopefully we'll be able to give you some results at some point, but certainly by increasing the ability to get, be more uh, less uh, hyperlordotic in the in lumbar spine, uh, maybe that'll lessen the chance that FAI and label tears occur. <clears throat> so again, what, what about uh, treating these? One of the things, uh, certainly as a surgeon, that, uh, that as I mentioned, we worried about in young folks is, is this something that's safe to do? So here's a, a, a a report out of the Boston Children's uh, with an, actually an individual that just interviewed for our fellowship. Um, and uh, this uh, uh, was a report of a long group of, uh, a large group of people. There, you notice there was no FAI in this group, um, but uh, they had, a, all of them had labral pathology. They were all skeletally immature individuals, and uh, they all did very well with a very, very low complication rate. I've had uh, one uh, pudendal nerve palsy. Fortunately, uh, it was uh, uh, transient, but that is probably the number one complication that we see because of the amount of traction we place, place on these individuals, pulling them around a large padded perineal post. So what, what do we see when we go to the operating room to treat these? Uh, here, here's a, a picture just to give you a little bit of a, uh, of a thought of what we can see. There's a picture of the femoral head at the top acetabulum and then the labrum. That's the, there's the round ligament and the fovea, so at the very central portion. Again, you can see very clearly. Here is, uh, unfortunately, uh, some chondral irregularities, so articular surface damage here with the labrum above. So this is somebody that's got quite advanced disease. Here again, same, same individual. You can see that there's actually bipolar disease, meaning that there's problems not only in the acetabular side, but also in the femoral head, which is on the right with a large labral tear. <clears throat> so labral tears, so um, we, you can treat these, and, and the good thing about it is if we get to these individuals early, such as this individual, where you can see there's an obvious labral tear with a little bubble stuck underneath the tear. The femoral head is, is normal, it's pristine, it's baby bottom smooth, it's all the right words, it's all the right things. This individual can ha have this fixed uh, with a series of uh, instruments that the companies have generated for us. We can actually put a, uh, a stitch around these, shovel it back and forth and tie it off and get very good results. Conversely, if there's an articular cartilage lesion here, this yellow shining through is unfortunately the surface damage that was in another individual who had a labral tear as well. But if that person has uh, damage, especially to the femoral head, by the way, much less well tolerated, um, this is not somebody that's going to do well and probably needs to have some changes uh, going forward. All right, so um, briefly with, uh, for a few minutes, let me talk about some uh, rehab ideas and then uh, open, open the door for some questions if you have any. So there are some uh, important things to talk about with rehab because uh, both individuals that are going to go down the non-operative care, but certainly those that have had <laughs> operative care, um, you need to pay attention. And we, we're learning, uh, just as we're learning more about pathology in the hip, we're also learning about the rehab of the hip. 
And the more that we pay attention, the more we realize that there's some things that are really important. First one is to make sure everything's healed and that they have normal motion and strength before they return, not dissimilar to other joints in the body that we treat. But gait training. So the problem with, with individuals, everybody want, hates crutches, right? I don't know a single kid that wants crutches, right? Actually, that might not be totally true. But, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but by and large, after a day, nobody wants crutches, right? They, that's, they, they think that they're so cool maybe the first day, but then they just absolutely don't want them. So the important thing is to make sure that somebody's using crutches until they are not limping, until they have normal motion and strength, not until they're tired of it and say that their armpits hurt. Because as, as we've been shown, and again from the talk that, uh, that uh, one of the therapists gave to us uh, recently, is that there is incredible forces, body weight forces across a joint, especially when somebody has a limp or an antalgic gait. So if you have somebody that's having troubles and you don't keep them on crutches either before or after their surgery, you can see the changes in the stresses that go on in the hip just with simple walking. So uh, it's important to pay attention to these things, and certainly as providers, we need to make sure that the, all of our folks, as they head off to therapy, understand that, yes, it is true that you need to work on your therapy, and yes, you need to stay um, uh, on your crutches until your limp goes away. <clears throat> We've known for years that the knee, when it's effused, swollen, that the quad shuts down. It's a, it's a reflex through the spinal cord. It has nothing to do with anybody's uh, will, willingness to work hard or anything. Well, now we're starting to show the same evidence in the hip. When the hip is swollen or has an effusion within it, the gluteus maximus and the other glute muscles start to shut down. This is certainly something that's gonna make a big difference as far as motion, so treating the effusion, again, make sure that they're appropriately treated. What we are starting to understand, or actually I should say this differently, what I'm starting to understand now is the importance of the rehab specialists working with these folks to make sure they uh, mobilize hip joints. After you've gone inside a hip joint surgically and you cut the capsule to get in to get better access, um, the chances of dislocation, incredibly low. You hear about people saying, well, you cut the capsule, that's where the ligaments are, therefore I'm sure you're gonna have a, a risk of dislocation. Just not, it is seen, but it's just not seen in, in a huge number of folks. So we talk about it and think about it, but really, fortunately, I've never seen it. But, um, but it's important to mobilize hips because once you cut the caps on the ligaments, scarring occurs that causes stiffness. That stiffness sometimes can be painful and gets very frustrating for individuals eight, nine, 10 weeks after their surgery because they don't have this wonderful hip that they were assured by us that they would have. So doing joint mobilizations, so hands-on manipulation of the hip joint by the therapist is very, very important. What about, getting, what about fixing labral tears or treating FAI or the combined? Um, what happens? So here are three uh, folks that have done a lot of research on this and have, uh, we've talked, uh, we've, we've read their research. I happen to have had the privilege of talking to some of them. A couple things come out of their research in the follow-up or the uh, outcomes is one that people do do well. They get back to athletics, but it takes a long time. So you can see that the ranges of getting back are you know, anywhere from four months out, out to about five years. So it can take a long time to fully return. I think that if you uh, put all the pieces together, fully diagnose somebody and treat somebody and get the right physical therapist working with them for the first three months, I think it can uh, do pretty well. And uh, the percent return, as you can see, is very high. Again, um, not, not, to, not to belabor this point, but if you make the diagnosis within the first year and you get, and you get somebody fixed, if you will, surgically or non-surgically, their chances of returning to play 
are much higher than if you wait or you diagnose them after 12 months and getting to a higher level play. So getting back into participation and progressing to the next level of competition, that also is much higher if you make the diagnosis early on. So whirlwind inside, outside the hip, I appreciate it. Thank you very much and I'm happy to answer questions.